Why is it we humans get romanced by complexity when the answers can be found at a simple and practical level? This is the Simply Practically Human podcast, where the human manager, Mark Labasque, features experts who have a track record in humanising workplaces, using simplicity and practicality as their go-to approach. It's all about getting back to what it is to be human and watch workplaces thrive rather than just survive. Hey there, it's Mark LaBusque for the uh, Simply Practically Human podcast. And uh, today I was joined by author, speaker and uh, host of the uh, Five of My Life podcast, Nigel Marsh. Now, I came across Nigel's work back in about 2012. He has an amazing TED Talk, which is, I believe, the most watched TED Talk outside the US with about 4.7 million views to date, where he addresses the issue of work-life balance. And what I really liked about Nigel's talk at the time was his honesty and his ability and preparedness to be very, very honest. And as I've called this episode, is to stop pretending. So he shares a pretty raw story about a midlife crisis, about uh, losing his job, eating too much, drinking too much, and um, having a year off and uh, and really starting to have a look at himself and, and what he was doing. So in this podcast, we really get into this idea of what happens when you stop pretending. And, you know, it's pretty real and pretty raw. There's some colourful language in there, which I chose not to take out because I think it's just in essence of the context of the story and the authenticity that Nigel shows that we should keep that in there. But I really enjoyed this one. It was a bit of a uh, fan moment for me because, uh, you know, not only have I watched his TED talk, but Nigel has three books, Fat 40 and Fired, Overworked and Underlaid and Fit 50 and Fired Up. These days, he travels around the world speaking at conferences, does a bit of one-to-one coaching, as you'll say, but he's really trying to help people to get more clarity, get more alignment, and then from there, build momentum. So this one sort of goes all over the place. There are some great tips there, um, some great experiences he shares around how to turn up more as yourself, but the decisions you have to make in order to get there. And I think uh, that won't just help you in your professional life. It'll help you in your personal life. It will help you be a better manager. So um, again, get that pen ready to take down some notes and don't avoid the work that Nigel says we all should be doing. Enjoy. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by author, speaker, the host of the Five of My Life podcast and all-round authentic human, Nigel Marsh. Nigel, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, mate. I'm going to do a bit of fangirling here or fanboying, I'm going to call it the start. I first came across your stuff back in about 2012 with that TED Talk, which we'll get into a little bit later on. And it was a bit of a moment for me to, as you said, take stock of my miserable existence at the time. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you for that. Not only has it impacted on me, but certainly a lot of people that I that I work with. So, mate, uh, it's a bit like my most famous person I've had on a podcast I'm about to start talking to. So it's uh, fantastic. Oh, well, listen, it's very kind of you to say nice things about that speech. I mean, I meant every word of it, and I'm really glad if it helped in some small way. Fantastic. Hey, I wanted to kick us off with winding a little bit back in your life. So uh, some of the research I've done, you I think you went off to boarding school at a young age. You want to just maybe share us a little bit about the early days of, uh, of Nigel? Do you want to hear a grown man cry? <laughs> yeah, well, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was no. I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to play for sympathy, but no, I, I was one of those blokes that was sent off to boarding school at the age of five in another country. Which, I mean, as a dad of four, I wouldn't 
particularly recommend it to other people but there you go that's that's what i did and then you know went through so basically left home at five you know and then and then went to uni in a different city and went to work in london and then came to australia so that's my a very quick potted history of me Obviously, off to uni, um, and then you got into the corporate world. Give us a bit of a background of um, the corporate side for you, mate. What? Because it was a. In the end, I think you were running some bloody big businesses. What? How did you sort of get yourself to there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I did theology at university, and surprise, surprise, being able to read the Bible in Greek doesn't really qualify you for many jobs, <laughs> apart from reading the Bible in Greek. Uh, so I started off working on the railway, in, in, in possibly the worst company the world has ever seen, which is a hugely valuable experience. I mean, I, I cannot tell you the incompetence and the bullshit on that. You know, one of British Rail in the 1980s, it's the perfect example of how not to organise things. So that, that was a privilege to be there. I didn't know it at the time. I then went off and worked for the health service, doing the AIDS campaign, anti-smoking, blah, blah, blah. And when I was at that organisation, I got offered a job by one of our advertising agencies. And that was a critical turning point in my life because I then went and joined the ad business and had quite a nice time and, and, and did quite well at that to the extent that after about 10 years, I got asked to run a couple of agencies in Australia, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne, and then you know ran a few companies in, in Australia, Leo Burnett, YNR, Campaign Palace, Leading Edge. I suppose my biggest corporate job running a thing called YNR Brands had 14, it was a holding company, 14 companies within it and at its height. Before the GFC, 1,200 employees, you know, over $100 million revenue, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I say that, well, because you asked, but also it's, it's important because lots of my stuff now is, I'm, I'm quite conflicted about the corporate world. I think, you know, many of the businessmen that I know talk rubbish all the time about everything to everyone. I mean, it's just, it's, just, it, it's only rubbish that they speak. There's nothing other than delusional rubbish. And, and I can come across as a sort of anti-corporate hippie and you go, well, yeah, but I have spent, 29 years building a successful conventional career. So I might now be non-conventional, but but I I do know how to tie a tie and you know give a presentation in a boardroom and you know EBITDA and all that rubbish. I like it. Hey, um, back to British Rail, you said that you didn't realise it at the time, but it was a, a bit of a good lesson for you. What were the lessons you picked up from there that you took on in your life? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell, I'm trusting you now not to take the wrong message from this story. But I'll tell you a story where it's just, I, I, I cannot tell you how junior I was. I mean, I, I literally, you know, I'm working on the railway, but I was in head office, right? But I was the grunt's assistant, not even the grunt. <laughs> um, and it, it was the time of Thatcher and, and all that stuff. And yep. uh, But so, so some bloke came in as the head of British Rail, which was one of the biggest employers in the country. And, you know, he obviously been given a mandate by Thatcher to slash and burn and all that stuff. And he had a, he had a plan. And I'll briefly explain. Have you got time for me to explain this plan? Absolutely. Okay. So at the time, British Rail was divided into three. You had the regions, which were the people who, you know, drove the trains and managed the platforms and blah, blah, blah. You had the divisions and you had headquarters. The divisions employed 6,000 people. I was in headquarters as, a, as the grunts assistant. And I think it was Bob Reed, Sir Bob Reed was the CEO, whatever else. And he came up with the crazy plan that he was going to disband the divisions. Because he thought that all the divisions did was take orders from the headquarters and then give it to the regions. And why can't headquarters talk to the regions? Now, I sat there and what? I was a member of the union because I just joined. That's what you had to be. Where P 
people will die, trains will crash. You know, it was, this is, it will be, forget COVID, this will be a disaster. The whole of the United Kingdom will explode if you <laughs> cancel the divisions. Now, the reason I said I had to trust you for the story is I am sorry for the 6,000 families that lost their living. You know, let's put that in a separate box. And you go, so he did it. He just cancelled divisions. So as of Monday, there will be no divisions. And what happened? Nothing. No one noticed. I mean, literally, nobody noticed. The train went from Paddington to Cardiff. It went from Cardiff <laughs> to Edinburgh. Nobody noticed. Now, I don't know if I've got this right or not, but did you work for Australia Post? I did indeed. Now, I know, I, I'm, they're all lovely. I would bet my mortgage, bet my mortgage, that I could walk into head office in Melbourne and get rid of 50 jobs. And I'm sure those people are lovely. I'm sure they think they're doing good jobs. They're writing PowerPoint presentations, strategy decks, blah, 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 and say, you haven't got to turn up for work ever again, and here's a million dollars, so they're fine. They're not going to destroy their lives. And your letter would still be bloody delivered. Your parcel box would still work. <laughs> anyway, so it, I learned that. There are lots and lots of, I mean, one of the things, lots and lots of people doing stuff that makes fuck all difference <laughs> to anybody. It's jobs for the girls, jobs for the boys. And just on that then, so those people that are sitting around doing stuff that makes fuck all difference. The other thing, and I start to think about heading towards your TED talk, some of those people, you know, you talk about people doing jobs that they hate to buy things that they don't need to impress people they don't like. How much do you think human beings get seduced into staying in a role because it pays the bills, but they're just miserable? What's your take on that? I think there's probably, there's a variety of different reasons why that happens. And I completely understand if you have to you know as we all do provide for your family and that's the job that you've got and the it's the only one you think you can get well no, hey i mean I'd, I'd, I'd do anything so that that is one one sort of reason another one i think it's probably more more common is it's the thing that i talk about <sighs> sliding not deciding i'm a sort of an optimist and a you know i i, I think people in the main are nice and in the main intelligent and no one sort of sit, you know, wakes up as a 19-year-old and goes, I want to spend 20 years of my life writing strategy decks that make no difference. You know, I don't think they do it. But that's different to, well, actually, I'm 36, and I think it's important because my boss thinks it's important. You know, my boss's job is useless. You know, if you're working in divisions at, at BR and you were in the middle management, everyone around you thinks the shit that you're doing is important. Yep. It's the new bloke that can say, yeah, but you needn't exist and nothing. But so I'm quite gentle on people in, in that you go – you know, that poor person in Australia Post who's the, you know, project manager, consumer engagement, digital whoppity wop. You know, they, they think, you know, they go home and say to their husband, you know, I've done a really great job today because I did a presentation to the CMO. And you go, yeah, but, you know, you'd be a harsh partner. He said, but would it matter if you had both died on the way to the meeting? Would anything have changed? So I think you get people who just slid into a life because that's what we all do. And, and, and then there's a third group which I hope is small, but you can get a long, long way if you are in this group. Just who like that shit, who know the game they're playing. Now, now those people I have a massive problem with and I try to have them not in my life. I mean, but there are people who go, brilliant, I'm going to get to the top of divisions in VR or I'm going to get to the top of this, whatever, I'm, I'm being horrible, and I don't mean to be horrible about Australia Post, it could be anybody, it could be Microsoft. You know, I, I know that there is a lot of, 
money to be earned and career to build as regional HR manager of Tampax, Beckett, Ren, you know, whatever it is. You, you know, so I'm, I'm just going to game the system. Yep. And, and, and again, you know, people do what they have to do to get through it. But you go, God, that, for me, that's almost like soul suicide. You're setting out consciously to be inauthentic and ineffective. And that can buy you a house and that can get you through to retirement. It's really interesting. One of the things that I think about with that sort of person, and, you know, you, I don't say that they shouldn't do it because that's just the way some people get built. But it takes so much energy to be able to turn up and do the – before I get to work, I'm, I'm Nigel. Yeah. And when I get to work, I'm the intelligent idiot who – plays a very good game at telling people what he thinks or she thinks they want to hear versus what they need to hear. And, and again, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on board here is because you are bloody good at telling people what they need to hear. Were you ever in a time where you used to play the, did you ever play the other game, the game of telling people what they wanted to hear? Yeah, right. So I was about to say, excuse me for talking about myself, but I suppose that's sort of the point of the interview. But anyway, but I said, stop me if I talk about myself too much. But, but is, do you aware of a book I wrote called Fat, 40 and Fired? Absolutely, yeah. So up until that book, and, and for your listeners, uh, you know, I lost my job and I had a midlife crisis and, a, you know, my career, you know, disaster, unemployed at the age of 40. Well, uh, but up until then, without wanting to, that was what I was in. Mm. And, and, and it's not all bad, but you just go, I'm sort of in this bullshit world. And, and the advertising industry is no worse. Than, in some ways, it's much better. It's no worse than other industries. It's not, as, it's not like Mad Men, right? It's a perfectly fine industry. It's quite fun and creative and intelligent people in it. But the corporate part of it, you go, I am spending large amounts of my time pretending. No, no, not nasty. I'm not doing anybody any harm. So when that <laughs> marketing manager says, we've got a great new shampoo, it's really good. You go, well, it isn't actually. Yeah, but hold on, but I'm the CEO of the ad agency. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be rude and stupid to say it's, it's no different to any other shampoo. I've got to go, well done, Jan, it looks great. <laughs> and what, what I'm thinking is, this is just bullshit. But so it's sort of, um, it's victimless lies. It's, 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 so, so nothing awful, but there's just this, this sense. And I'm the bloke who studied theology, for Christ's sake. That, you know, I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm in my career. And, you know, I, I think I'm a nice bloke and, and all those things. But is it just me or is she talking bullshit? And is he talking bullshit? And, and hold on, that, that budget, I, I don't know what your job was, but, but I, I have, I'd have situations, I promise you this is true, where the global CEO would look at the budget that I'd submitted yeah, and say, that's not good enough. And I'd explain why it is what it is. And then what they'd, I promise you this is true, I don't know why it doesn't bother other people. It, it would, my stomach would ache laughing at night when I'd tell Kate, my wife, those. So I'd be in this conversation, Human being to human being. It's like you and I now are talking authentically, and it's like someone flips a switch and we start talking bullshit, right? So you've said my budget's not good enough. I've explained why it is what it is. You've said, no, it's not good enough. So I say, I'll change it. Not, not I'll meet it. I'll, I'll change the number on the budget because you wanted it to be 5 million, not 3 million. You know, and I know, that I won't meet it. And you know, and I know that in a year's time, we'll say, what a name, but it's, it's the consent and evade thing. You, the, the easier thing to do is be, we're all going to agree that Nigel's going to go for it, win lots of business and make $5 million profit, not $3 million. But you know I'm lying. I know that you know that I'm lying. But that is what the construct of shareholders and board meetings and annual budgeting 
demands. So I'm not as stupid as I look. So you go, no worries, Michelle. Five million it is. <laughs> Woohoo! And you go, how did the meeting go? It was great. They've signed off the budget. And you go, but are you going to meet it? No. And, and, and so you've got all this stuff. You go, but everyone's talking bullshit. But I don't blame them. You know, we're all God's children. That's fine. But you go, I'm in a world where I would like to be able to say, but Michelle, why would you want me to change three to five when you know I'm not going to get five? And she, if she was honest, she could say, well, because my boss wants me to be able for the region to say 55. So everyone's lying to everyone. How about we rebased it? I mean, fire people who are idiots who can't, you know, do that. But, but if, you know, I was, we were agency of the year for fuck's sake. So you go, uh, trust me, it's Nigel talking. It's going to be three. If it's three, I'm still knocking the lights out. Yeah. Why are you making me say it's five? No, no, no. Now, to have an easy life, you should, if you want to build your career in those environments, the way to have a career and succeed is to say five. People will be listening to this and they'll be like, he's talking about my conversation I had yesterday <laughs> in the budgeting <laughs> process. It's like, you know, the, I remember going through it. I, I spent a lot of time in sales, Nigel, and um, it'd be like, yep, you got your target uh, last year or you were just over, but, you know, it wasn't, we we're going to have to stretch you next year. And, you know, and I had a target tripled from one year to the next yeah. um, because they, we were 238% ahead of our target in this first year. And they're like, well done, but we're going to put your target up three times next year. Can I tell you, uh, and this is, I mean, it's true and, and, and I sort of don't mind, but it's, it's a wonderful realisation. So I used to work for Sir Martin Sorrell, who's, who's like a big cheese in India. Um, but what you realise is it wouldn't matter what you delivered. So the conversation, this is, this is like suddenly being able to talk Russian. I was in being in Russia and not understanding it. When someone flicks a switch and you can understand it, right? You go, ah, uh, you don't just have this conversation with Mark or Nigel. You just don't have it with people who are failing or succeeding. You have never said to anybody ever, well done, carry on. Yep. Whoever comes in the room, so, so he'd have 183 budget meetings of all the countries, and it wouldn't matter if they said, oh, I'm awfully sorry we made a loss, or we you know, only made 1%, or we made 20%. They'll say, what your bloke said to you. You, you, you were 280% above budget. Yeah, but we're really going to have to push you, mate, next year. Yeah. Yeah, but, but in a real world, wouldn't you say, mate, you've killing it just carry on <laughs> i mean that, that's a normal conversation <laughs> and i guess that's one of the reasons why perhaps we're both not in what you've just called the real world which is the other world let's explore a little bit i love it on your podcast when you tend to you tend to i think you've done your research and you've asked them to come with some things to talk about but then you throw a sneaky little question in that knocks people a little bit off balance and you're like come on mate answer the question talk to me about this moment where the business in Australia folded. You said you were, at the time, listening to you, it's like I was drinking too much, I was eating too much, out of your, your, your podcast, not spending enough time with my family. You also told me before the podcast that I'm not coming on there to tell people or give people advice, which I really like this. So let me ask you this question. What was the advice you then gave yourself at the time when you made that decision to have a year off and look at what was important, if there were two or three things that you said to yourself that you needed to hear, what would they have been at the time, those things you told yourself? Yeah, I think it is probably summed up by the opening quote from my TED speech. And it's something that it's interesting when people ask me my advice or they hire me to consult them or all those things, is they can initially think I'm cleverer than I am 
because they missed the point that my life was upended by external things. Now, now I might have responded to it effectively. So, you know, well done me. But the truth is, if I hadn't lost my job, there is a possibility that you and I wouldn't be talking and the last 19 years of my life, I'd be, I'd be global CEO of whatever and I'll be fat and drinking and talking corporate bullshit to you. Yeah. So one of my most passionately felt points is the importance of reflection. The reflection that happens. I talk about the big four, which is death, disease, divorce, redundancy. Now, I don't know you, mate. I mean, you seem to be a nice bloke, but I bet you that you know people in your life who had been carrying on in a certain way. And then one of those four things happened to them. And then they said to you, do you know what, mate? I am, I don't know, leaving Melbourne, leaving my job, divorcing my wife, I don't know, losing weight. You know, they had a aha moment where yeah. they changed their life. But you go, but hold on, but you've been living your life like that for 22 years. And suddenly you've now thought this. And you go, but it's always been the case. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But seeing my brother die of brain cancer has made me realise we're only here once and it's not a joke. Yep. Or, or catching my wife in bed with a plumber made me realise that we haven't got a proper marriage or whatever it might be. And you go, wow. So part of my, and it's weird because I don't sell, I mean, you, you called me, I didn't call you. I mean, I'm a weird bloke. You know, people find me, they find me, and then I, I talk honestly. But part of my desire to do what I do corporately, and whether I'm coaching an individual client or I'm consulting with a corporation, is to make them do the reflection without the big four. I can spare you. I mean, for me, I mean, so what? I lost my job and I was fat and alcoholic and had an operation, blah, blah, blah. But something happened in my life that made me, oi, you know, you know, just think about how you want to be. How about use this speech, not because I'm clever, but how about use this speech to reflect rather than in five years' time, have your wife leave you? How about that? So in, in a, I haven't had a drink for 19 years. In, in alcoholics terms, they talk about being beaten teachable. So, so you go, you get put in prison or you shoot your mother or you, you know, something appalling happens where you go, even I can. Right? How about don't be? How about don't be beaten teachable? And, and I admire you for what you do is how about you use Mark's book or speech or program to sort some shit out rather than one of the big four? The big four is personal. There is stuff. I, I've just been hired to do a conference speech online about COVID. I, I don't think they know what they're in for because I'm going to say a whole bunch of different <laughs> stuff what they're expecting. But it is, you know, COVID, blah, blah, blah. How about using COVID to sort out some non-COVID stuff? Maybe your business is not sustainable. Maybe you are running around pretending that people want what you are selling. Maybe you're not very good at it. Maybe your competitors do it better. Maybe you haven't got any credibility. You know, all the, the things that would exist before COVID. And COVID comes along and it's a bit horrible, like that bloke, a friend of yours or me, who had been living their life. And the things that I thought in 2001 that made me change my life, but I could have thought that in 1995. But I just didn't because I was running around. It's not like I haven't answered your question. I've forgotten what your question was. No, I think the big piece here, the big learn for me, and it sort of sits in nicely with, with the work I do, is the stop and reflect piece. It's it's the work that I call of the mirror. The mirror gets turned back onto you by you, not by someone coaching you, but by you when you go, fuck, I don't want to look into this mirror because I don't like what I see. I'd rather it be out that way or I'd rather just be part of gaming the system that I've been in. I, I gamed the system for 25 years myself. Maybe 20 years, the last five, I rebelled against the system and 
took the second of, uh, of two redundancies over my time. But I think the big point is stop and reflect. Uh, you know, I do some work, a program I run, Nigel, on the second day, I give them 20 minutes to stop and reflect. Great. Most of them are sitting down back in their chairs at 10 minutes and I leave the room and one day one of the guys walked out and he goes, we're ready. And I, and I, and I said, I'm fucking not. <laughs> and he walked back in and he told the people that and then they accused me of being rude and I said, I gave you 20 minutes to stop and reflect mm. but you were ready to get on with whatever it was because that's the way the world is. And for those who watch your TED Talk, I can say for myself, it's like stop and reflect and then go, is this shit really working? And then the hard bit is, and, and you know, you talk about honest inventory, the hard bit now is the honest inventory. So again, on that, how do you help people who sometimes don't want to help themselves to step into their honest inventory? What, what, what are your thoughts around, around helping people get there or do they have to just get there themselves? Yeah, God, it's interesting. So one of the, it's very nice to talk to you, Matt, by the way. It is one of the biggest ways I characterise my change in my life is, and it's gloriously liberating, is I have stopped pretending. Yeah. So I've stopped pretending I believe things that I don't believe, and I've stopped pretending that I don't believe things that I do believe. And that doesn't mean being rude to people or, or smug or, or whatever, but, but just, do you know what, I'm, I'm allowing myself at the age of 56 to actually be honest with what I think. So that helps me with, with myself, but it also helps me when I'm talking to other people. So if I haven't got an answer, and sometimes what people want is a off-the-shelf answer that applies to everybody, and I get hired to go around the world, I'd go to Texas to speak to 3,000 horse vets, bizarrely, it was wonderful. But you go, do you know what, what might work for a 55-year-old unemployed advertising executive might not work for a Texan horse vet. <laughs> so um, let's just start with a bit of honesty. Yep. Because maybe Mark hasn't got all the answers and maybe Nigel hasn't got the answer. He might be interesting to talk to. He might be used to, you know, but let's, let's just be honest. So, so it's like an honest answer to that. Can we rephrase the question again? And I'll, I'll come to it. So that you talked about um, honest inventory and I'm, I'm interested in how do people get to step into their own honest inventory? Okay, so I think and this is me, this is how I work, is I don't force it on other people. So my audience is self-selected. So, so it drives my wife mad because it means I, I don't sell for business. You're right. But I'll give a speech and after a speech, two or three people will come up and say, will you coach me? And I will say to them, I am completely unqualified. I have no qualifications. Here's a list of three qualified coaches. And then one of those people will say, yeah, but I still want you to coach me. And I'll say, well, I charge like a wounded bull. And, and then one out of two of those people will say, okay, I want you to coach. So they've been through <laughs> the hoops of, of wanting. So they clearly are open to hearing some of the things I say. I make sure I'm talking. I walk into the park now on Bronte Beach and knock someone on the shoulder who's doing exercise and say, excuse me, can I talk to you about the authenticity in your life? And I hope they say, fuck off, I'm exercising. You leave me alone. <laughs> who, who the hell are you? Right? I mean, you know, or, or just pretend Australia Post, they, they do need a little bit of sorting out. I could walk in there now and say, listen, guys, I've noticed that, you, you, you know, fucking none of you really add any value. Well, who are you? Go away. Whereas if they hired me, I mean, which I, I'm not using them because they did for a while. If they hired me, you go, ah, oh, well, well, you, so you want to hear some of the things I want to say. So I suppose it's, it's a cheat answer. It's like if someone's got a drink problem and don't want to sort it out. There's nothing I can do. There is nothing I can do. If someone goes to me with a drink problem and says, do you know, like, I think I might be hitting it too hard, I might be able to help. So thing one is, is select the audience by, by letting them come to you. And then there's, there's a piece which I really like beyond the reflection. 
So I can talk to them about my personal experience. I'm getting better at asking questions and listening and all those wonderful things. So people come to me because they like a book I've written or whatever. And, and so they already I'm on the front foot. But what I talk about in my consultancy, and I talk about this in my life as well, is clarity, alignment, momentum. Now you talked about the last five years of your conventional career. And I talked about, I studied theology and then I... So what happens for many, many people is ironically... Once they're prepared to listen, the reflection bit can be quite easy because not many people say, I want to be a father, a shit husband, a shit executive. I mean, if they do, they're sort of like sociopaths, right? Most people was able, you know, like to, you know, leave the world slightly nicer and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right? And you go, right. So then how's that working for you? So I, I'll ask Mark, what type of man would you like to be? What type of legacy would you like to leave and, and life to lead? And you tell me. And I go, yeah, and, and what actual life are you leading? And what legacy will you leave? So then the really key point, and this is, comes down to providing for your family and all those things, you go, so we've agreed, Mark, you want to be this type of person, but we've also agreed that you aren't. Yes. Now, I lived with that in the ad industry for a while, and I'm not blaming anybody. You've lived with it for the last five years of your thing, and that, that, that's fine. Yeah, that's, that's fine. It takes a process. You don't just wake up and jack. And you go, right. But the liberation, the liberation and the happiness, I'm looking at you, you seem to be a happy bloke because you're doing something that I know that you believe in. Yeah. Whether yeah. It doesn't matter if, if you tank and you're out of business next month or whatever else, you, you, you aren't ripping off cynically your audience. When you go to a, do whatever you do, a speech or a conference, you aren't thinking, how can I roll these people for whatever? And that is amazing. Now, if you, if you put that to your own life, you go, so hold on. I want to genuinely provide a bit of value. I genuinely do. I, I want to have this conversation with you. I don't want, I'm, I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm not, I, 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 I'm just, I'm, you ask me, I want to have, answer your questions honestly. It's just such a liberation. Now, that I can help people when you say step into it. You go, you sort of show them, take them to the top of the mountain. <laughs> and you go, how exhausting would it be for me to go on Mark's podcast and have to remember whatever bullshit it is that I have to remember because I'm sell <laughs> whatever it is I'm going to sell. It's just terrible. But you know, going into your job and going, well, so what have I got to say to Michelle about the budget? I've got to pretend that five million, yes. Or, you know, how about if you just go, I haven't got to remember anything. I've just got to work hard, try and provide value, be polite and charming, and just be honest. If you think about my podcast, the five things. So I'm clear what I want to try and do. I'm, I'm not trying to give self-help tips or anything. It's just sideways into prominent people. The momentum piece. If you said I have to do six interviews next week, I go great because I really like. I'm, I'm aligned. You know, you know it, it, what's that thing that the Buddhists say about if what you think, say, and do is aligned, that's happiness. If you think all oh, bullshit, but they have to say it isn't, then then you just ah, it's horrible. I think about my work, which is pretty simple shit. It's about trying to allow humans to become more human and just go into a room and not speak the bullshit that they usually speak. Because at times I'll say to someone, I don't even understand what you're saying. And that could be the CEO in the business sitting in the room with the rest of the people and, you, and they're like, they all look at me like, you can't say that. But I look at it like this now. I'd, I'd be happy to be fired, Nigel, on the spot in that room because they say, I don't think this is going to work. Then not say that and then work on, let's get our values aligned and do a five-year strategy, but then hate each other. So uh, everything that you said then makes absolute sense. Can, can I tell you one of my bugbears? Yeah, please. And, and this is very, very confronting for many people. 
is being honest and authentic doesn't mean you will succeed. No. It means you're honest and authentic. And what some people are after, you know, life is hard, business is hard. So I'm going, yeah, most people in business, unfortunately, talk bullshit. And I'd like it if they didn't. Now, what they confuse that for is, great, sales will go up. Because I no, no, they may or they might. I don't know if your product's any good. I mean, for all I know, your conferences could be rubbish, and I'm sure they aren't. But you go, I prefer that you're authentic and, and whatever. And then there's this other thing, which, wow, I wrote about this in my second book. And nobody says this, but here we go. And you can edit this out if you think your audience will burst into tears. No. Is um, <sighs> being a rapacious, selfish, ambitious, short-term C-U-N-T in business works. Hmm. Okay. Now, what people say, and I respect their motivation, but they're just wrong, is, oh, but employee engagement and retention and recruitment, if you're nicer, it will work better. Now, I'm here to tell you, and I'm trusting your audience and you, that that is wrong. And I'm happy to say it's wrong because the reason I want people to be honest and authentic and not short-term and not selfish and not greedy is because I want them to not want to be that. Not because, actually, it's a trick. I'm going to be nice because then I'll get to heaven. I'm going to be that because then... EBITDA, shareholder value, profits will increase. Now, obviously, I want profits to increase as well, but the really tough thing in your personal life as well as in your corporate life, and this is my message where some people, it's too much of a bitter pill to follow, it's a choice. How do you want to live your life? How do you want to run your business? I guarantee I could make your sales slightly better by saying to you, don't tell anybody, but for the next six months, we're going to be a little bit inauthentic. That client doesn't really want your message, but doesn't matter. Yeah. And you go, well, if that's what you want to do, but I'd like you not to want to do that. But if the only message is money, unfortunately, you go, ooh, the people that I said, do you really, if you want to see how little God values money, have a look at who he bloody gives it to, right? Have a look at all those, who they are, hedge fund managers or Bernie Madoff or blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so trouble is, some people, they are stuck in the metric. And, and I like success, I like ambition, all that wonderful stuff. But if you have one metric and one metric only, it justifies appalling behavior. But the appalling behavior works. And it's interesting, you know, you talk about um, being nice, this whole idea of being nice and and I found when I had more success in the business, we worked to a, a term which was politeness prolongs progress. And so what I mean by that is we had conversations in the room. If you walked in there, you'd be thinking, this isn't an engaged team because they sound like they don't get on with each other. Well, that's bullshit. The reason that we did so well is because I say in inverted commas, we weren't being nice to each other. We weren't practising that game we've spoken about earlier, which is just keep bullshitting until the whole place fucking blows up. We actually had some pretty robust conversations and I think that's, again, why I like your stuff is that I think it'll be confronting to listeners, but for me, I'm listening to it and going, that's how the world should be. That's how the world is in corporates. I get that. That's why I made a choice not to be there. There are good people in there, but there are other people that aren't good. And 
that's sort of what what goes on. But uh, no, it made it absolutely make sense. I think we confuse sympathy and empathy a lot. We, we feel sorry for people where we should say, hey, I can step in your shoes and understand what's going on, but get up off your ass now because we've got to move on. We've got to keep moving on. Do you know, a boss phrased it for me, which I really love, is there's a difference between being caring and being a caretaker. So, I, which I really like. You go, you should be supportive and loving and all those wonderful things, but we are a firm and we've got to sell whatever it is we're selling. So I'll be, you know, understanding whatever else, but but I'm not a... Yeah, I'm not a hospice for lame ducks who don't do whatever the job is. You know, if you just pretend I'm hiring you to be a pilot and you say, I'm scared of heights, you go, well, uh, you, you know, I'm sorry you're scared of heights, but but I needed a pilot. I mean, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw um, a few things in common, mate. Helicopters. You're not a big fan of the helicopter? Oh, I hate, and they're noisy. They make me sick. And if it goes wrong, mate, you're toast. If a plane goes wrong, there's a chance it can glide or go off the other engine. Helicopters, forget it. Mate, we, uh, we went up to um, Uluru for my wife's 50th, and Alison books us for one morning to go out and do the sunrise flight. I'm a claustrophobic to start with, and I'm shitting myself. And then we find out, we start getting messages from people saying, are you guys all right? And we're like, yeah. The, the, the night before, the chopper had crashed. And, and then we couldn't see it that morning because we, we took off in the dark. But as we were coming back in, you could see it on the ground and, like, n- never. And that, that could have, you know, you want to wipe out your whole family, put them in a chopper. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to finish off with this event that you've created, and I, I believe it's because of the shitstorm we're in at the moment. It's not happening just at the minute, but the Sydney Skinny. Yeah. So when I listened to you with, um, with, with Osha, you were, you, know, you were convincing him to get involved with it, but not only that, your, your explanation as to why you do it is to, you know, really help people to, to step into something that they never thought they could do in order to get out of their comfort zone, whatever it might be. Why is that event so important to you now? Um, if you think about what we've talked about with helping people and whatnot. I, I, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous event. It's, it's a new swim for anyone who hasn't heard of it. We've been doing it for seven years and it, it's I think it's the third biggest swim in Australia now not not new to any swim and it, it grows double digits every every year one of the things I I have done in some of my conference speeches is I get people and I say it's an entirely private process I don't want any of you to show me what I'm going to ask you to do or show it to anybody else but I'd like you to write down on your phone or your iPad or a bit of paper two of the personal decisions that you're most glad that you've made okay so this is at the, the start of a five minutes into an hour speech, and I'm not going to look at it. It's entirely personal, so please respect the request. Just write down, you know, it could be getting married or getting divorced or having kids or moving house or, you know, whatever the things, retrospectively now, you're really, really glad that you did, okay? And then I go and do my speech, and, and then about 40 minutes into my speech, I talk about the Sydney Skinny, and they think, oh, it's about nudity. It's got nothing to do with, it, with being seen nude or seeing nude, Right. It's a metaphor for life, and, and life expands or contracts in direct proportion to your courage, blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I'm crapping on about my swim. And uh, I've got this you know, lovely audience. Sometimes it's thousands, usually it's hundreds. But I'm talking, I go, right, what I'd now like you to do is look at, but don't look at it yet, is look at when I ask you the two things that you've written down 50 minutes ago. And I want you to think honestly. You haven't got to tell me. You haven't got to raise your hands. You haven't got to nod. Do either of those things that you wrote down, did they involve taking a risk? Okay. Now, what happens, which is what you're doing now, I love it. What happens is they all look down and they all raise their hands and they all nod 
and I've said, don't raise your hands, don't nod. But they all look down and they all raise their hands. <laughs> it's a beautiful moment because what I'm talking about is the things, and I'm talking about stupid risks, the things that really make your life and existence on this planet as Mark meaningful are things that have involved you being a little bit vulnerable and taking a risk. Now, I'm not telling you that. You're reading the two bloody things you wrote down. And you heard me crap on about this, and they look down and it will say, you know, leaving Mark or marrying Mark or having the third kid. Or, you know, and so they know that I'm talking the truth. But then I say, which I love, is so now we all agree that it is self-evidently true in our personal lives. Because you wrote it down an hour ago. I've just been talking about it. You've looked down and you've all raised your hands when I asked you not to raise your hands. So you all are in agreement. So why, excuse my French, are we so fucking stupid as to think it's self-evidently true in our personal lives, but it doesn't apply in business? Drop the mic, right? You go, oh, that's what happens in life. But oh, no, in business, it's about never taking a risk, never risking. But you go, it doesn't make sense. How can you've been in this conference? You've all raised your hands. You've all said the thing that changed my life, la, 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 la. But oh, in business, it's keeping a nose clean, never doing anything wrong. And you go, I'm just going to leave that with you. If you really think that that stacks up, then that's fine. It's your bloody career. But it seems to me self evidently true, given you've just nodded, raised your hand, and looked down, that all the things that are valuable in your life personally involve taking a risk. And then your conclusion is, but in business, we shouldn't take any. And it's interesting you say that. There's a term that I heard from a fellow by the name of Marty Linsky. I, I did some work on adaptive leadership over at Harvard in 2014, and he talks about the skillful art of work avoidance, our ability <laughs> to avoid doing things that are hard and that we don't like. And when you were talking about that then, Nigel, I'm thinking that's just uh, most of us who don't take the risk will go back into work avoidance mode and they'll just go back and do, they'll do the five-year plan and they'll accept the $5 million budget or whatever it is because that's easier than saying, fuck you, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah? yeah? yeah. yeah. Hey, mate, let's, um, let's finish off with where can we find more out about you? Um, I know there's your website. What, where, where else can we go to find out a bit more about Nigel Marsh? Uh, do you know, I'm, I'm sort of relaxed about that, mate. I mean, as long as someone gets something out of, this conversation on your podcast is the thing that you know, my website's the best place to go, but I'd love people to check out the five of my life. I mean, they wouldn't find out anything about me. They'll find stuff about my guests. And, and if they want to find out about me, they'll, they'll work it out. Yeah, mate. Look, I, I've um, been binging those, as I said before we started today. Uh, I think I listened to Ted Richards and uh, Charlie Teo, Gus Warland, and, mate, they were fantastic. So, uh, And I, I actually got the rabbi one I need to jump into as well. Nigel, thanks for joining me, mate. I've had a uh, absolute ball here, and I hope you've um, enjoyed the conversation as well. Yeah, and, and mate, now that this is random because I don't know how you found out about me, but now we've connected, let's stay connected. Absolutely. I'd love to, mate. I've, I've now met the human being who is everything I thought he was from a 10-minute TED Talk that I watched, mate, so that's terrific. Thank you. You have a great day, mate. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed having the conversation with Nigel and, uh, you know, picking up on a few of the things that he talked about today. Are you pretending? It's a great question to be asking yourself right now, you know, and if you are, sometimes you might say to yourself, well, that's just the way that I'm going to get ahead in the world. That's the way that I'm going to keep putting food on the table and living the life that I'm living. But uh, it's just a good question to ask yourself. So the four D's that he talked about, death, disease, divorce and redundancy 
are you waiting for that moment to happen before you stop pretending? He also talked about taking some time to sort your shit out, stepping into your honest inventory and, you know, this other idea that it's a choice and that we do slide into a life that we get caught up in, which might be a corporate life and might be something like that. And this other thing that he did say was that being honest doesn't mean that you will succeed. So there's going to have to be some decisions that you make in order to get to a different place. If you like this, why not rate it five stars? And if you loved it, share it with your friends. The other thing I'd like you to think about is checking out Nigel's podcast, which is The Five of My Life, where he interviews some fairly prominent people about five things that are really important to them in their life. And then they'll, through the way that he can do this very, very uh, authentically, he will ask some questions about how they got to those things being their favorite things. So check Nigel's podcast out as well. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now. Bye for now.